I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. Good morning over there in Ottawa, the bunker Good in Ottawa. Good morning. Good morning. Bright <laughs> so, and early here. Yeah. So, but you are like an always early and shiny, so it's it's fine. I mean, the audience <laughs> can't see you, but I can. It's actually some beautiful shine in your face. Is oh, that the light thanks, you have? Frederick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a beauty light on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. So our podcast is rolling on. And I I mean, we I just found out we now have 139 countries. Wow. So there was some more dropping in. I said Iraq and I said Algeria. It was Bhutan. Bhutan, was fantastic. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it's, it's happening all the time. We, we get step-by-step step a bigger audience and, and you're all welcome. And if you have friends that don't know about the pushback talks, tell them to find it. We are like everywhere. So today we have a guest, uh, a friend that we've, I met the first time in London after showing Push the first time. And you also met him. His name is Karim Dennis. Aka Loki, the rapper, the poet, the activist. Welcome to Pushback Talks, uh, Loki. Thank you so much, Frederick. Um, I really enjoyed the film. Such a fantastic piece of work by you both, and I'm sure others um, made great efforts with it as well. And I really hope that the film can be spread as far and as wide as possible because it really cultivates that kind of criticality, which is essential for us to fight back against what is happening. Yeah. And actually, I mean, Push had its theatrical release in the UK uh, two weeks before the pandemic, or one week was it? So let's say it didn't happen what we were supposed to happen. I mean, uh, Nicholas Burton from the Grenfell community was about to, to tour with the film, but it all got cancelled. We're actually talking now to, with our our UK distributor, uh, Johnny Tull, to to make something, uh, a screening around the UK on the Grenfell Day. But Karim, I mean, it's five years, very soon five years since the, since the fire of Grenfell. Where were you that day? I was opposite the tower, less than 100 meters away from it. Um, in a block next door where I lived for over a decade. I lived in the area for over 20 years. Um, I saw the tower burn. I saw the fire move up the tower and then around the tower because of the uh, cladding, which was, it had a crown on the top and it was that very crown on the top that actually directed the fire around the tower, um, as concluded by the inquiry. A friend of mine, Yasin al-Wahhabi, who I knew from when he was a teenager, died in there with his family and, yeah, saw it all and had the bits of the cladding in my hair um, on the night, yeah. It is, I mean, I was there also after the fire as we started to film and it's extreme that this can happen in a civilized country like like the UK in in the richest borough in London, probably maybe the richest borough in the world in some ways. Uh, 
tells you a story about inequality and the the, the price of human lives. And, and Leilani, very quick, you did you you did a conclusion also from seeing mm. this from afar. Yeah. So I was in some weird hotel in some strange part of Canada when it uh, started to unfold. I was I remember I was just on Twitter and I saw that there was this huge fire. And then I just, as is my nature, just start, just immediately started to dig just a little bit, just to see. Like what I, d- I had never heard of Grenfell. I didn't know where it was. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it was a social housing estate, which it isn't. Um, and anyway, I immediately could see. In fact, I stumbled upon notes from some tenant meetings where the tenants were expressing concern about this new cladding that was being put on their building. And I, I mean, it was all there for the viewing immediately. I could see this was a low-income group of folks living in a rich borough and all of that inequality um, manifesting in this fire. I mean, it was shocking to me, as you say, happening right in this, you know, center of London. Yeah. So, so Karim, you lived there for a big chunk of your life and that neighborhood changed in a very radical way over the last years or last 10 years. Yes, absolutely. I think the key to understand with Grenfell is that on the side which put the cladding on the side of the building, this is the increased complexity that came out of deregulation of the construction industry. In terms of what restricted and cuffed the uh, ability to respond by emergency services, that was austerity. That saw 10,000 jobs cut from the fire service. That saw um, the local fire stations, two of the closest fire stations shut down. Also the refurbishment that put the cladding on the side of the building built a school which cut off the access to the building from three corners of the building for the fire brigade. And of course, this was warned against by Grenfell Action Group, who uh, um, Leilani mentions uh, their blog. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of culmination and coming together and confluence of a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah I, I saw um, a small documentary from that neighborhood from the 70s. Yeah. You can see that these estates, the Grenfell estates and other estates, were like the nice houses in the area because the others was like really tough slum where people were living in very bad conditions. Now all these houses that were slums are now sold for millions and millions to people who don't even live there. So now the estates are like the, the only place where normal people can live. Absolutely. I mean, also, the thing to remember is that Labrick Grove following the Windrush, some call it migration, but under the British Nationality Act of 1947, people that lived within the British Empire were British citizens. It wasn't changed until the Commonwealth Act in 1962. So a large amount of people left the Caribbean and came on the Windrush to Britain and one of the only places that they were allowed to rent was Labrook Grove because very common 
was the no um, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks written on the wall. And so a lot of the housing, which, as you say, um, Frederick, at that time was considered slum housing would be very large um, houses that many, many different people lived in. Um, this is where the Caribbean community came. And the very road, which is overlooked by Grenfell Tower, was the site of four days of rioting in the late 50s. But then if we sort of fast forward a bit to the immediacy just before the fire, myself and others who lived in blocks around Grenfell, our perception is that our blocks were going to be demolished very soon for what uh, the council called the local plan, which was the, um, you know, as you rightly said, the life expectancy of those of us that lived in that part of the borough was 20, 20 to 22 years less than those that lived in the south part of the borough. So the inequality is really very stark. A lot of that's also to do with the Westway, with this big motorway, which runs through the middle of the community and the pollution that is said to reduce people's life expectancy. But um, but my point was just going to be, um, Grenfell was believed to be the only block definitely safe from regeneration because it had the cladding placed upon it and it was regenerated, whereas the rest of us, we thought, were going to be demolished. What then happened was that Grenfell, obviously, what happened was it, the fire happened, and then they pulled back from knocking down our blocks. Yeah. I mean, in, in the film, we we visited another part of London where there was something called the Haygate Estate, yeah. which was built in the same years as, as the, the Grenfell Estates, was... Uh, and that was taken down and replaced with what I now call Elephant Park. When we visited Elephant Park, it was mainly empty. It was all built on speculation and 3,000 people were moved out from their homes, from houses built in the 70s. So there was nothing, no real problem with the, with the, with the apartments or something. It was just that you could make more money out of that space. And I guess that was, was what they were seeing also as then your borough is the richest in the world. And there, I think that's, it's interesting right now because we, we have now a big focus on the oligarchs. And this is you live with the oligarchs. They, it, that's their area. But not only Russian oligarchs. Of course, there are oligarchs from the US. Michael Bloomberg has a big house there. And, and the oligarchs from, I mean, Sweden or Angola or Nigeria or, I mean, and we even don't know their names because it's, all, it's all purchased through tax havens and people don't necessarily live there. It's just parking money. So it's, it's, it, so this has been your home, this area with all this wealth, but do you really see the wealthy people there or? Well, it's interesting because I think in some ways you have worlds within worlds. David Cameron, for example, the former prime minister of the country, lives less than a mile from Grenfell Tower. Um, for example, I used to, with volunteer, um, as part of a council program, uh, teaching kids football on Mondays and Fridays on the football pitch that, again, is less than a mile from David Cameron's house. We had situations where young people were stabbed on that pitch. Um, 
eventually, you know, the funding was cut for it. But it's a really strange kind of thing about London being so densely populated is you have so many of these different realities sitting in each other's faces, but there's a kind of well-organized um, ignorance, I would say, on, on the part of some. I mean, the interesting thing about Grenfell, though, is that I feel it was exceptionalized rather than generalized. So it what it revealed was a national scandal, but that national scandal was camouflaged as a local scandal, meaning that the very same, you know, following the Kyoto agreements, the bid to lower carbon emissions meant that the British government was successfully lobbied by a group called Brofuma, which was a grouping of foam insulation companies, among them some of the companies involved in Grenfell, to be subsidised to insulate buildings across the country. Now, the British government went along with that after the lobbying, and one of the buildings that was insulated was Grenfell. Along with Grenfell was hospitals, hotels, cinemas, schools. There's a school less than a mile from Grenfell, which four years after the fire has had insulation made by Kingspan, which the insulation itself is flammable, put into this primary school within a mile from Grenfell. Now, the point is, is that what Grenfell revealed was a massive national scandal, which is touching also, you know, 80% of the people in the area we're talking about um, live in social housing, right? The cladding scandal that Grenfell revealed is disproportionately affecting leaseholders, a lot of them first-time buyers, um, and people that are now, because of the ambiguity that exists within leasehold agreements, it's different from the social housing. You know, the social housing had the cladding on it, but it was removed very quickly, within a year. Almost all buildings that are part of um, the council run directly, and even housing association, um, a lot of them were taken down. It's the ones in which there are private leaseholders, whereby the housing association were able to say to the leaseholders, you have to, in some cases, pay £50,000 to remove this stuff that you never put on there. In addition to that, the people have been told that the valuation, in some cases, of their properties now is zero. In other cases, they can't sell them because banks won't give mortgages for properties like that. And because nobody is coming forward to remove this stuff off the building. And so they were able to tell the rest of the country that we as a community were so unlike them, were so unlike them that they didn't need to get behind our campaign and get involved. So it's five years now, yes. Leilani, five years. What what have the world learned from Grenfell? Or what and, and I mean you I know you have a good insight in the UK. Can you see that this has changed something, Leilani? <laughs> um not not really, no. Um I think um Karim provided us with such a rich understanding of the way in which racism and classism work. And I don't think we've gotten away from those structures. I mean, he rooted it in the history of the place. And 
It's built in, literally built into the buildings, the infrastructure, the way the community was structured, deeply in legislation, et cetera. And, you know, what we're seeing as he was talking, Kareem, as you were describing the kind of evolution in the area where Grenfell is situated, to me, what all we've seen is a kind of new version of colonialism. And I, I mean, I just, I don't see that we've learned much from Grenfell at all. In fact, that last bit that you were talking about Kyoto, which is about climate change and trying to protect the climate, having actually a negative effect on low-income people and racialized people is very alarming because we're, we're moving into this era right now of, you know, trying to lower our CO2 emissions. And there's a big drive, as there should be, right, to protect the planet, save the planet. But are we going to be saving the planet at the expense of and off the backs of poor, racialized brown communities, brown and black communities? It's really troubling to me. It's certainly something the shift my organization has been looking at really squarely, which is, you know, wait a second, if there's going to be this big drive, like in Europe, there's a whole green drive, you know, a renovations drive. Well, are we going to do it in a way that starts from a place of trying to create equality through these changes? I mean, it would be a possibility, wouldn't it? I mean, because sure. we had in our podcast, we have the, the vice president of, of the European Commission, Franz Timmermans, uh, the Dutch social democrat. And uh, first of all, it was interesting that he said that that uh, the neoliberalism that they took in was a big mistake, but he's also now the the head of the of the, the European New Green Deal, and and they will put money and incentives into rebuilding uh, homes. So of course you you could do that in a way so you actually take back some kind of government control from the private market by. You know, I mean, I could I could at least see that happen. I don't know if it will happen, but it's a, at least an opportunity, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, you don't know. I think okay. I'm happy to answer that. I mean, I think there is a yeah. real opportunity. Yeah. But what worries me is when you hear a history like that described by Karim, you realize, wait a second, a lot would have to be undone to get us to that place. And are we... Are we willing as various societies, it's not just the UK, although maybe the UK is expert at this, which is what you, you were suggesting, I think. Um, but are we willing to do what's necessary to, like, what would be necessary? It would be necessary that we start listening to low-income people, uh, black and brown communities, who are saying things like, well, you know what, if you're going to renovate my building, th these are what I need in order for this to happen in a way that works for me and my community. It would require politicians to actually listen to com all communities, and especially the low-income communities who are not going to be doing these renovations themselves necessarily. So now the Grenfell story to me is about People not being listened to, not respected as human beings. I mean, Frederick, when we were there, people were saying to us, no one listened to us. You're one of the first, because I was UN rapporteur at the time, you're one of the first officials to talk to us, but to listen to us. 
right? Mm-hmm. And that's not something I'm seeing globally where, where low-income communities are being listened to suddenly. I mean, I would say just that the, the, the meetings I had with with the Grenfell community was that it, it's a very active, it's very, it's very alive. People know their rights. People, I mean, it's it's not they are not just victims. It's really cool, smart people fighting back. Exactly. But what I found is that that the Grenfell fire was so strong, so the establishment really felt threatened by this so they they actually had to kind of counter spin they had to they these poor people who had lost their families friends everything they got a very heavy spin against them saying that they were like trying to take advantage of everything it's like they became the crooks you know the victims became the crooks and i which i found extremely provoking so I mean, so this is something I'm, I'm I'm interested in. What I mean now, five years later, has this turned around? Yeah, I mean, great question. I just wanted to speak to the previous point very quickly. So the thing with the company that um, was responsible for the PE Renebond six millimeters of polyethylene cladding on the outside of the building, Arconic, big U.S. construction company. Its top shareholder is actually BlackRock. Now BlackRock are also simultaneously top shareholder in Shell. And BlackRock are also now part of the solution, supposedly, when it comes to climate change. There are some that argue that this polyethylene, which is being stuck on the side of the building, is almost an alternative use for fossil fuels, um, or seen as an alternative use for fossil fuels. When we look at this, the moving of deregulation and where that is pushing things, but then the attempt to sort of deal with climate change on one hand, the real turning point when it comes to Grenfell was the Margaret Thatcher years when they um, passed something called the, um, the Building Regulations Act, Michael Heseltine. What they did was take about 300 pages of regulations and replace them with about 25 pages of regulations. Now, previously, they were prescriptive, whereas they changed them to performance-based. So when it's performance-based rather than prescriptive, what that says is it doesn't make a difference what material is in the building, as long as I can prove that that material doesn't behave a specific way. So also the difference with the testing now is that If I'm BRE and you are Arconic and you want to test your materials to see that they live up to a certain regulation, all you have to do now is give me, say, £15,000. I send you to a warehouse where you do the test and then you report the result of the test to me rather than me me being involved in that test. Because this is the story we hear all the time, that uh, the people with most money their biggest enemy is always regulations. Regulations means laws. We have laws to regulate a society, the balance between different actors. And they don't want it because they want total freedom for their money. And this is, of course, it creates a lot of problems, not only in London, it's it's around the world. And I mean, you mentioned... Um, BlackRock, which is not Blackstone, which we have been talking a lot about, me and Leilani, but BlackRock, 
if you listen to the episode we did with Peter S. Goodman from the New York Times, who wrote a book about the billionaires, the Davos man, he talks about Larry Fink, the, the CEO of BlackRock. He's actually, and BlackRock is also very much in the housing business. In Germany, they are a big part of Fonavia company, who is like now also very big in my country, Sweden. I mean, they're everywhere, of course. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's the, one of the biggest uh, hedge funds on the planet. And, and they are into everything and they are, and they don't want to have rules. Leilani. Didn't he, I think Peter S. Goodman says in his book and on our podcast that BlackRock has a percentage share in 95% of the companies that are traded on the stock exchange around the world, 95%. And, and they have positioned themselves exactly as you said, Karim, like they have a finger in every pie, as Frederick just said as well. And yet they're positioning themselves as being the ones who are going to save the planet from climate change. And they're going around and, and consulting with governments around the world on that front, meanwhile, they have a stake in industries that are very much against uh, that are contributing to climate change. So, but I, I have a question for you, uh, Karim, around the inquiry. It's still going on. I think it's been three years of inquiry, uh, or something like that. You'll know better than me. Um, how's it going? And what's your take on it? Is it is it is it going to bring justice? I believe that it is functioning to um, restrict any possibility of convictions. The companies were able to procure an immunity from criminal charge for anything that they say on the stand or they acknowledge on the stand during the inquiry. They were able to, yeah, to obtain that from Sir Martin Morbick, that severely dwarfs and defangs uh, the inquiry. Um, I think there is a useful conclusion that the first phase reached, which was that, number one, the um, Arconic PE Rennebond was the main promoter of the fire across the building. I believe that up until now, it's generally seemed to sort of invisibilize deregulation, which has been not good because deregulation is the core of the issue. In a way, what the first phase concluded was that that cladding was against the law, essentially, was was um, outside of the existing regulations. But the problem is with the regulations is they have such a creative ambiguity about the difference between the surface and the core of the material, that the companies are able to exploit that creative ambiguity and uh, and make the most of it and sell as much stuff as they can. Um, I don't think the inquiry will deliver us justice. I don't believe it was even intended to deliver us justice. Will there be justice in some other way? No. I mean, I, I personally, I'm of the position that we should have launched a campaign of direct action immediately after the fire, shutting down the factories of the companies. 
We should have made their presence in the country untenable. We should have turned the communities in which their factories are against them. We should have coordinated directly with trade unions and workers that are putting this stuff on buildings who would down tools, you know, for maybe a day at a time, maybe a week. There were all types of different levers of pressure which could have been applied. You know, they say that the corporation has no body to to punish and no soul to condemn. And Grenfell is the most clearly articulated example of that in my lifetime. But on the other hand, uh, Karim, is that it's also, it's very hard for somebody who has just lost their family and friends to first fight to get a new place to live. And then, you know, and then when their kids move out to get the place for them to live, you know, Absolutely. and, you know, it's like, and then from that on take on this big, it's like that, then we need something else. We need solidarity. Yeah. We need uh, the political parties who take on this, this fight. You need more, you need a whole society that takes to fight. You know, when, when it was happening, there was about 50 to a hundred people on the street. We were watching it. There were riot police in front of us, armed police in front of us okay within hours the world was in the area yeah the whole world was there at that point what do you do with these people all of these people feel horrified by this massive spectacle you know it's like the slow attritional violence suddenly became physical you know flash of the night now how do you turn that into a productive and useful movement that applies pressure in the right places and yeah absolutely i mean people were overloaded and you know and i think that's what what i was looking for in in my previous question that in some way the grenfell community became dangerous for the for the for the government so you get you got all this spin and i think also because of this this is not any city in the world. It's London. It's the middle of London. So the world media was there. I mean, when I was talking to to people who had survived, they showed me interviews with like 10 million hits or 15 million hits. You know, <laughs> different platforms where people have been interviewed. And so they went they went from this horror into being kind of media celebrities in some yeah. way for a short moment. And of yeah. course, that's totally confusing. Yeah. Uh, and and it's hard to take the, the fight on because yeah. if this had happened in Mexico City or in Sao Paulo or in, in other places in the world, it might have been different. I mean, people, I think the, the media attention in some way also complicated the thing. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think absolutely one of the disturbing things about what you've just said with respect to the inquiry and the history of the UK, I think they, they go together. It's What's disturbing for me is that the inquiry seems to be a way of putting aside the human experience and dealing with it in a very formal, legalistic way that allows the government to say, well, we dotted our I's and we crossed our T's. We had this inquiry all good now, right? But I mean, to have an inquiry isn't the problem, is it? I mean, that's fine, isn't it, to have an inquiry? I mean, you should have. 
Yeah. It, yeah. Well, this is what I was going to say. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Frederick. I mean, my work, if you read any report I've ever written, I'm always saying access to justice, access to justice. People need access to justice. And one of the ways in which one has access to justice is through hearings, through inquiries, through, you know, a, a, a place and a space to make your claims. But the implication of what you said is that maybe this inquiry is like a bit smoke and mirrors. Maybe it's not going to achieve what I call access to justice, right? Um, I don't know how the people of Grenfell, the survivors who've testified, feel about the inquiry and whether, um, you know, just having the ability to say their story, not everyone was included, but lots of people had the opportunity to say their story. Maybe that, maybe that is healing in some ways and having this legitimate forum in which to do it is somehow mm. moving toward justice. Didn't you offer to be, you, that's, you said you wanted <laughs> to be, you told the British government you want to be part of the inquiry? Twice I made a formal application to participate, to be able to explain um, to the inquiry the ways in which international human rights law might intersect with what happened in Grenfell. Um, I viewed what happened as a violation of the right to housing on many fronts, um, but they didn't invite me in. Didn't need my expertise. <laughs> Uh, Loki, Karim, you are going to pick up your kids soon, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> and he and he's at school very close to to Grenfell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you moved out from the community after all these years. Yeah, um, we were not able to afford to get what we wanted in the area. I mean, that's that's understandable. To be honest, it's it's one of those places that. Um, that is happening, you know, on a daily basis, really, um, with people from the... That's another very sad and frustrating story. You're part of of a very vibrant and strong community, very very strong identity, and then people are forced away. Yeah. So it's also the, the power of the community is like, it's, this is, this is also something we see all over the world, you know, yeah. Communities don't really know how to fight back because they are weakened all the time by people, or are forced to leave. Yeah. This is something we yeah, should absolutely. keep talking. I mean, about. that's that absolutely. That's the displacement, and that's what I mean when I say this uh, financialization or uh, of neighborhoods is a kind of colonialism. It creates uh, monolithic white rich neighborhoods and displaces black and brown and low income communities. I mean, that's. Yeah, I mean, but but I mean, if the if uh, somebody from Nigeria is who stole money from his people is buying a house, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter where but the money comes from. The money comes yeah. from, you know, it's 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 still the same, um, the same. And this is also something that happens. I mean, in, in all kind of country countries, mm -hmm. that the money is the ones who are displacing people. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um. I don't know if you have to leave soon, but I mean, you as an artist, as Loki, how have you handled this uh, uh, this trauma, these five years? Has it, has it changed your way of thinking in some way, or or you're just yes. angrier? No, <laughs> yes, I mean it's it's definitely um, removed the uh, the blinders of naivety um, in terms of how 
agencies of the state are mobilized domestically. So, you know, essentially this was about social order and it was about maintaining that at any cost. And it was quite six, it was quite uh, sophisticated and it was about sort of behavioral sciences. And for me, seeing the expendability of the lives of people who I loved was tough. But as an Iraqi, I have already an, an understanding of the expendability of, of humanity um, because of these last 20 years. But to see it in such a sort of intimate space was, was yeah, was really, really challenging. But then following on from that, seeing the sophisticated ways in which the state seeks to assert itself and maintain um, social equilibrium, as it would see it, um, in the aftermath. But when we listen to you now in this podcast, you are an activist with tons of detailed information. It's, it's not the rapper. <laughs> it's like, so what happened to the rapper? Well, I mean, at that time, I'd already um, had a master's or I think I was coming to the end of my master's. I'd um, already worked um, translating on a few cases for people in, in Calais. And at that time, Britain was part of the EU when I'd done that. And we'd won um, three of the out of the four cases that I worked on um, and translated. And that was great. And so I was already sort of becoming more involved um i definitely viewed the community in terms of belonging i, I viewed it slightly differently I, I kind of took it for granted i i viewed this as just you know just a place that you know is what it is and was what it was and um it made me realize the stakes actually of uh local uh campaigning you know because i've been active on some stuff in the community but not as active as i could have or should have been So it kind of brought home to me um, the urgency of uh, of uh, of being actively involved in in what's happening. Mm. It's really cool. Thank it is you. cool. Some of our listeners might not know, and I just want to give you a a nod, um, Kareem, that you have been very active on a number of really important issues using your voice when you can and where you can. In particular, for me, really important, the work you do on Palestine. Um, a lone voice sometimes in a sea of other voices. So just a, a big nod to you on that front because uh, that's not easy work. And it's, it's of course, it's harder to be Palestinian um, than to be a voice for Palestinians. Uh, but certainly it's super important that that piece of work that you do. So just a, a, a shout out to you on that one. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, I, I think we landed in a little bit of a pessimistic tone. Um, uh, is that because it's early morning for Leilani or is it like, are we sleepy today? Or to be honest, I, I think the era we're living in right now, I mean, we're talking about post-pandemic, we're talking about post-start of the, the war in Ukraine. I can see a lot of things, perspectives shifting, yeah. ideas that we didn't, think were possible before suddenly is, are not so strange. I mean, for example, seizing the yachts of these oligarchs or seizing their properties. Ah, changing laws. I mean, the UK, in fact, is changing some of its laws to go after some of these 
big guys. So it means can you can you go after one crook? You can also go after another one. I mean, so it suddenly things that were impossible recently might. I mean, it might be a momentum for for something new. I think for me, that's kind of hopeful. I think for me, what I have been able to find solace in throughout these years has not so much been the overestimating our ability to sort of bring down these juggernauts of power. It's often the finding the cracks in the monolith it's the sugar in the petrol tank. It's the, you know, for instance, on the four-year anniversary, Palestine Action shut down the factory of Arconic in Birmingham. It had massive support from the local community. A lot of people came out. Um, you know, one of the people who shut down the, the you know, because Arconic not only make the cladding on, made the cladding on Grenfell, they also make the F-35 fighter jet, which has been used in Gaza in 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 may so palestine action as an act of solidarity shut down arconics uh, factory in uh, in uh, tamworth i think it was so for me it's the sort of attritional victories it's the ability to disrupt the passage of that power um that's what personally i've been able to gain solace from uh recently and yeah i think it's important also to tell the stories in history where things haven't gone the way that the powerful would always like, you know, and Notting Hill Carnival, for example, in that community, turning tragedy into triumph um, is also something that I think we need young people to have a sort of cognizance of and uh, their education system's not giving them enough information about that, unfortunately. I think it's also interesting, this kind of breaking point where people go from being passive bystanders to actually move into the center of something, taking a risk. I mean, I was recently in Chile where, where this is happening big time. Uh, you've, I mean, you know what happened in Baghdad in 2019 and Beirut 2019, which actually same month that's also happened in Chile, where people actually st stood up and took a lot of risks and... and I think that's very interesting. I mean, if the next step is, of course, also to talk about Ukraine, you know, because Ukraine, when you have this massive power coming against you, people actually, they they work together. It's like a whole, whole society, a whole country that actually is working together to try to defeat this invading uh, fascist power of Putin's. I think that I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm not saying we can take all that into our own experiences but it's but it's it, i think we need uh, we need inspirational stories and examples and i think the ukrainians are one of them also in chile the resilience of people the the willingness to take to the streets that's where i get my inspiration not just in in instances when you've got the backing of the world right like you look at the beirutis for them to finally rise up was amazing, in my opinion, right? That, I get inspiration from that, for sure. And I get inspiration from Ukrainians saying, no way, yeah, this is our home. So, dear dear listeners, uh, send us some positive notes, some hearts and loves, and, you know, we, we, need, we need a lot of that. But I'm, I'm actually quite positive. Um, I think we, if we see the enemies, it's easier to fight them, and we understand them. 
and when you you talk about BlackRock here, it's it's good to understand who they are. Mm-hmm. So exactly, good. exactly, friends. It's time you have to pick up your kid and you have to go out. Have, I guess you need to have some breakfast, Leilani. And, Moi? Uh, yes, uh, I have to have breakfast, have to walk, walk the dog. Walk the dog, yeah. That's you know, good. get on with life in Canada. Yeah, it's tough <laughs> enough, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Um, what a great conversation. Great Thanks again. so much, Karim. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. Keep, All the best. Thank you. See you, See you later. Yep, keep soon. going, Thanks. keep going. Bye-bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.